you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to John chapter 3. John 3, and we will be in verses 22 through 36 this afternoon. The natural desire of our hearts is to increase, to become greater. Some of us may even achieve some sense of greatness in our eyes or in the eyes of others. Some of us may not. And if we are not recognized as great, well, that's okay. We'll just be drawn into comparing ourselves with others. Or maybe sometimes we get frustrated because we sense that others are a little bit better than us. Maybe we look down on other people uh, who are seen as great, or we look down on other people who are less than us so that we can feel better about ourselves, so that we can increase. In our quest for greatness, maybe we're driven towards some concept of success. Uh, We seek to define our worth by the work that we do. Uh, and the the greater work uh, and and the greater that our work is the the greater that we feel we are maybe we see our greatness in our physical beauty or our strength maybe we find our greatness in our intellectual superiority maybe we just think something like we're funnier than everyone else or maybe that we're more serious than everyone else we could find our greatness in the accomplishments of our children and feel like we're superior parents to everyone else. We could consider ourselves to be more moral or more holy than everyone else. Whatever it is, we have a desire to increase. We have a desire to believe in our own greatness in some way. And we have an ability to find greatness in ourselves in whatever area, uh, in, in many different areas. But we could possibly even see this attitude in Nicodemus, who we talked about last week, who was presented to us as a a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, and the teacher of Israel. He He was a cut above everyone else, it would seem, except that Jesus let him know that there are no exceptions. Anyone who comes to Jesus and receives him as Savior must first humble him or herself and be born again. So John now is going to turn our attention back to someone who seemed, unlike Nicodemus, to understand this call to humility and to the exaltation of Jesus as much as anyone did. John the Baptist returns to the stage, and he is set in contrast, as it were, to Nicodemus. And he reminds us of this, this truth, that Jesus is superior to all. Therefore, we must joyfully seek to see him increase as we fade to the background. That's our big idea for today. Jesus is superior to all. Therefore, we must joyfully seek to see him increase as we fade into the background. If we can see and recognize the miracle through the miracle of the new birth, just how superior and preeminent Jesus is, then it begins to work in us a humility that allows us to become less and less concerned about ourselves and our exaltation. But here's the problem. Uh, 
The problem is that the world is always seeking to pull us in the opposite direction of joyfully seeking the increase of Jesus. It tells us that joy is found in exalting ourselves above other people, that we need to build a brand for ourselves, that we need to flaunt our accomplishments on social media, that, that we need to seek the applause of others no matter the cost, that we need to belittle other people, whether to their face or behind their backs, so that we can increase. But we are, in the words of Audio Adrenaline, who used to, I could hear them from my bookshelf stereo system in high school, saying to me, we are never going to be as big as Jesus. I don't know why that came to my mind. And no one else here probably listened to Audio Adrenaline, but that's what came to my mind. Jesus is superior to all. Jesus is, is bigger than everyone. Jesus is superior to all. Therefore, we must joyfully seek to see him increase as we fade into the background. And I hope that, to, that today we'll see that this is actually no sacrifice, but that seeking the increase and the glory of Jesus frees our hearts to find true joy. So let's read John 3, 22 through 36. And as we do, we can note that there's a potential conflict that, that is raised in verses 22 through 26, which is then followed by a response from John the Baptist in verses 27 through 30. And then what I would say is likely commentary from the gospel writer from John in verses 31 through 36. So John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with him and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from above, from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus is superior to all, therefore we must joyfully seek to see him increase as we fade to the background. Let's begin 
by looking at verses 22 through 26. And I want to head this section with a question that the disciples often argued about, which is, who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? Verses 22 through 26. There's a potential rivalry and conflict that John sets up for us in verses 22 through 26. We're told that Jesus moved away from Jerusalem and went out into the Judean countryside to be with his disciples. But we're also told that he was baptizing people. Now, the first few verses of chapter 4 make it clear that Jesus himself did not actually baptize anyone, but it was his disciples who were doing the actual baptizing. And in those verses, it's made clear that at that point, there were more people that were going out and looking for Jesus and for his disciples than were going out and looking for John. So a shift has happened. But here in verse 23, we're told that John is still baptizing. And while he had moved on to a different location for for some reason, people were still coming to him and still being baptized by him. Verse 24 notes that this was all happening before John had been thrown into prison. In other words, it's still early on in the ministry of Jesus. Now, back in John chapter 1, we saw that that John the Baptist was, was creating enough of a stir in that area that the Jewish authorities were sent uh, they sent representatives to figure out what was going on. And, and this description here helps us to see that, that there was a significant impact from John's ministry, that, that this was not a small thing. There's no numbers that are given for how many people were baptized. John didn't have to report to anyone, I guess, and, and no one was keeping track, it doesn't seem. But the impression is that there were a lot of people that were coming out to be baptized by him. And now his ministry of repentance and preparation is combined in some ways with the ministry of Jesus. So this is a significant thing that is happening in Israel. But there's also significant potential for some sort of a clash to happen at this moment. If you're driving around town and you see a Heine Brothers starting to go up across the street from a a Starbucks, then you assume that maybe there's some sort of a rivalry happening, right? Or if Chipotle sets up next door to Qdoba, uh, you, you can't help but wonder if, you know, maybe there's some sort of business uh, clash that's happening here. In this situation, there could be a sense in which we say, well, you know, I mean, John was baptizing first, but why are Jesus and his disciples kind of doing the same thing? Are they trying to take over? Are they trying to steal John's thunder? And that's certainly what John's disciples seem to be thinking. However, however, their frustration with Jesus is actually the second conflict that's raised in the text. The first it talks about this conflict between them and, and a Jew, about purification. They're arguing about purification. Now, why, does, why is that brought up here? Because it seems to be brought up and then just sort of laid to the side. We're not even really told exactly what it was about, and the conversation moves on very quickly. But I think what it does is it shows us that, that these guys, the disciples of John in particular, are not moving forward. They're still having old arguments about old issues, not realizing all of the newness that Jesus was bringing. And I say that because if they had been paying attention, then they would have known that any question about purification had already been solved. It had already been solved at Cana when Jesus filled the water jars that were used for, for purification rites with the new wine of the kingdom. 
And not only that, but Jesus also made it clear that he was fulfilling the promise of the new covenant, specifically in the fact that through him, people could be born again by water and spirit, he tells Nicodemus. Any discussion about purification had to reckon not with Jewish, not with Jewish pur- purification rites and not with John's baptism, but rather with the coming of Jesus and the new wine and new water of purification that he was bringing. But those guys aren't talking about those things. I think like them, sometimes it's easy to get caught up into arguments that don't really matter. And specifically, we can find ourselves splitting hairs on matters that the coming of Jesus makes obsolete. There's so much newness in the work of Christ that if we would spend more time contemplating how his coming has actually transformed everything, then we might realize that he is the answer to all of the arguments that we have with one another, that he can bring everything into a correct focus. So we should often be asking one another, how does the coming of Jesus change the way that we talk about all these old issues? Now again, though, the main issue in this text has to do with the fact that Jesus was baptizing people and was we might say, taking business, as it were, from John. It's clear that John's disciples remember that John had testified about Jesus, that he had said that Jesus was the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, but they still feel a loyalty to John. They may even have resented some of the ways that John was acting, the way that he had sent Andrew and, and John the disciple away to follow Jesus. And they want to know what John thinks about all of this. So there's this potential clash, and it's brought to John. John, what do you think about this? And we don't have to guess what his response was, because John makes his thoughts very clear in verses 27 through 30. And this is what he teaches us. Joyfully embrace the opportunity to decrease. Joyfully embrace the opportunity to decrease. I think John's in a potentially tough place. Just think about it. He's, he's watching all of the people who had been following him start to leave and go somewhere else. That's kind of a shot to your pride. Could make you feel like you've done something wrong. And yet for John, it actually doesn't seem like it was a very difficult situation because he had come to grips with his role a long time ago. He knew, John 1.31, that the reason he came baptizing with water was to reveal Jesus. He knew the day was coming when he was going to fade into the background. He knew that his ministry was for a specific purpose, for a specific time, and then it would be over. In verse 27, John responds to a very specific issue that was raised by his disciples with a very broad principle. But it's a principle that helps us understand this whole chapter. I think it's one that's going to help us with the gospel of John as a whole. And In the New Living Translation, verse 27 reads like this, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. That's the principle. No one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. Fairly easy to understand. Uh, Kern's Kitchen has the copyright on the term derby pie. So you can get a chocolate nut pie from other places. But if you want a derby pie, it has to come from Kern's. Nobody can receive a derby pie unless it comes from Kern's. Well, John wants us to see that no one can receive anything unless it comes from heaven and is given by God. What, why will we pray before potluck and give thanks for all of the food on the table? I mean, you guys are the ones that made it, right? 
Well, when we pray, we acknowledge that everything that we have is from God, including even the effort to bring something to the potluck table. As James says, every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights. This is a general principle, but one that we would do well to constantly acknowledge in our lives, that, that God is the one who gives us everything. He gives us our daily bread. No one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. John is saying here that his ministry and his calling, calling were given from God. And that ministry was one of pointing to the Messiah, not of being the Messiah. He tells his disciples, I was clear about this from the beginning. I told you, and I told anyone who asked me that I am not the Christ. I've simply been sent before him to point to him. And then John gives this wonderful illustration about a bride, a groom, and a best man, or what he calls the, the friend of the groom. I'm going to show you a picture. Maybe. I knew it wasn't going to work. Okay, I'll show you later. It's a picture of Andrew and I's wedding. Actually, it's a picture of my friend Mike uh, Schuster. He was my best man. But if you look at that picture, you would see Andrew and I, and you probably wouldn't really notice Mike standing there unless I said, hey, this is a picture of Mike, because the picture's not about Mike. The picture's about Andrea and I. Um, and so when we think about that, when we think about this this idea that the best man, the, the friend of the bridegroom, is not the focus. The day is not about, about him. Um, but John isn't simply saying that the wedding isn't about the best man. He's saying that the, the best man doesn't want the day to be about him. Rather, he's thrilled and he is full of joy that his friend is getting married. He's helped with all the preparations, he knows how much his friend loves the bride, and he's as excited as anyone that this union is happening. He doesn't go to the reception and say, you know, I wish the ceremony would have focused a little bit more on me. That'd be weird, wouldn't it? I mean, I think that attitude would reveal that that, that person actually wasn't a very good friend to the groom at all. To that end, D.A. Carson writes this. He says, for John the Baptist to have wished he was someone else called to serve in a way many would judge more prominent would simply be covetousness by another name. If the person he envied were the Messiah himself, he would be annulling the, extra, the excellent ministry God had given him. Deep discontent over God's wise, sovereign disposition of people and things would in that instance betray not only unbelief and faithlessness, but the worst form of the perennial human sin, the arrogance that wants to be God and stand where God stands. If we're honest, we admit that that's something that rises in our hearts, the arrogance that wants to be God and stand where God stands. But that's not John's desire, is it? He holds no grudge against Jesus. He's not bitter. He's not angry. He's not seeking to stand where God stands. Rather, he is thrilled that people are following Jesus. And he summarizes his attitude in this phrase, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must become greater while I fade to the background. The word must here communicates that this is God's will. There's no other option for John to decrease 
for John other than to decrease so that Christ can increase. That is God's will. And John doesn't kick against the will of God. He joyfully embraces it. It is what must happen, and it's what John wants to happen. For every follower of Jesus, and in fact, in some sense, for every person in the world, the will of God is for Jesus to continually increase. That is God's will. It's, it's for, God, for, for Jesus' glory to fill the earth more and more and more. And the invitation of the gospel is to confess that we have sought our own glory, but now, having been born again into a new way of thinking, we actually want to joyfully embrace the opportunity to decrease so that we can be a part of God's will, his will that Jesus would continually increase. Now, if that sounds like bad news to us, the idea of decreasing, we don't like that. If that's bad news, then it means that we need to allow the newness of the kingdom and its principles to seep down a little bit deeper into our souls so that it can root out all of the self-centeredness that is in us through the influence of the world and the flesh and the devil. Because God is not calling us in this decreasing. He's not calling us to misery. It's, it's an invitation to embrace the opportunity to decrease. And in that invitation, he is calling us to joy. John is not sad. John is happy at the opportunity to decrease. The will of God is the exaltation of Jesus above everything, and we are invited into the happiness of that will. We're invited to walk away from the never-ending misery of seeking our own glory into the never-ending joy of seeking the glory of God. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't strive for greatness or that we don't have ambition in our lives. John had an amazing, powerful, world-changing ministry. It just means that we're seeking God's glory in everything that we do. We don't need status. We don't need praise because we're seeking to, to deflect all praise to God alone. So if we don't get any glory in our lives, we're fine. And if we lose our status at some point, we're fine. There's no pressure to hold on to some former glory. When you think about, there's many people, there, there are many people who have reached some level of acclaim, even some level, we might say, of, of fame. And there's a compulsion to hold on to it at all costs. They don't stop working. They, they push against the natural processes of aging. They continually strive to be consistently relevant. What if John had done that? What if John had tried to hold on to his position or tried to exalt himself a little bit higher? What if he decided that on the route out to where Jesus' baptism location was, he was going to put up a billboard that said, you know, come to the original baptizer. It's over this direction. This is where it all started, you know. You could see him standing there in the water, his ministry having become like some sort of a roadside attraction that was all the rage in 1965, but now it just looks kind of worn down and hokey. You guys ever been to one of those, you know, where it was cool at some point, but now we, we need to move on. And that's what we become if we fail to release all glory to Jesus. Even worse, we end up seeking to rob God of the, of the glory that is due to him and to him alone. Instead, our hearts say with John, he must increase. That, that's what's going to happen, and I'm going to joyfully embrace that. And I know that I'm going to decrease, but that's fine. All glory to God. So if we have honor, 
we rejoice that Jesus is greater than us. And if we lose honor, we still rejoice because Jesus never loses his. He is always superior, which leads us to verses 31 to 36, where we're invited to joyfully announce that Jesus is superior to all. John, John first told us to, that we can joyfully embrace the opportunity to decrease, and now verses 31 through 36, we see we can joyfully announce that Jesus is superior to all. And this is where our hearts are crying out to the scriptures and to God, show us Christ, show us his superiority. If verses 16 through 21 are John's divinely inspired commentary on Jesus' Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus, then we find actually the same thing happening here in verses 31 through 36. John, the apostle and the author of this gospel, is drawing together the themes that we've read. I think he's even dipping back into that conversation with, Jesus, with, with Nicodemus. And in the process of doing that, he tells us more about who Jesus is and calls us to believe and to trust in him because he is superior to all. What makes him superior? I'll give you four things that make Jesus superior that I think John's pulling out here. Number one, he comes from the presence of God. Jesus comes from the very presence of God. I think we'll see in coming weeks that John's emphasis on Jesus' origins and the crowd always wanting to know where Jesus came from is, is all over this gospel. And here John tells us what we saw in John 1, 1 and following, that Jesus has come from the very presence of God. And because of that, he is above everyone. John knew, John the Baptist knew, that there was no way that he could ever surpass Jesus. Why? Because he was from the earth. His birth was miraculous. We know the, the birth of John the Baptist to uh, to Zechariah and Elizabeth was miraculous, but it was also natural. But not so with Jesus. Jesus' conception was unlike anyone before or anyone since because he was coming from heaven to earth. And his heavenly origins means that he is superior. He is the only one who has ever come from heaven, and therefore he is superior, or superior over all. This also means, secondly, that he speaks the words of God. What makes him superior? He speaks the words of God. Now, John the Baptist also spoke words from God, just like all the Old Testament prophets did before him. But he spoke of things that he was, that he was told, not of things that he had seen. Not so with Jesus. Jesus spoke of things that he had seen and that he had heard. I can look at a picture of the Grand Canyon and tell you how magnificent it is. I can read facts about it and list those off to you. And what I, I say, there, there can be some, some truth in it. But if I'm not mistaken, the Cottrell family could say, yeah, well, we've been there. <laughs> we stood on the edge. We saw how big it was. We felt the wind. And Karis right now has a better idea of how great the Grand Canyon is than I will until I go and see it, right? And so there's this sense in which Jesus speaks unlike any prophet before him. He speaks of what he had seen and what he had heard from God. John sadly adds here, yet no one receives his testimony. 
Isn't that amazing? The, the greatest testimony from the very presence of God, and no one receives it, and no one will unless we are born again. But if we are born again, then verse 33 says, we are among those who receive his testimony and know that God is true. Why is Jesus superior? He is, he is from heaven. He speaks words from God. Third, he's superior because he receives the fullness of God's gifts. He receives the fullness of God's gifts. Remember from verse 27 that no one can receive anything unless God gives it to him or to her. And verse 35 says that the Father has given some things to Jesus. According to verse 35, what has the Father given to Jesus? Everything. (laughs) The Father has given Jesus everything. Jesus has the master key to every room in the Father's house. He has access to everything because the Father has given him everything. And why has the Father given him everything? Because he loves him. Isn't that beautiful? He says, God has given given Jesus everything because he loves the Son. Specifically, he has given Jesus the Spirit without measure. Now, again, the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist included, as the last of the Old Testament prophets, they received a portion of the Spirit to do the work of the ministry that they were called to do. But Jesus, we're told, receives the Spirit without measure. You can't measure the amount of the Spirit that Jesus has. So he is superior. And the wonder then is that Jesus takes what the Father has given to him and he gives it to all of his children. We see this on, in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost that God pours out his Spirit on his people in an unrestrained and indiscriminate way such that every follower of Jesus becomes a prophet in his name and the church becomes a pure people, a new temple, and a new nation because of what Christ has done, because he is superior to all. So Jesus receives and gives the fullness of God's gifts. But Jesus not only gives to us, he also takes away. In verse 36, we see the superiority of Jesus in the fact that he removes the wrath of God. He removes the wrath of God. Look again at verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's interesting to note that God's wrath is spoken of in such close proximity to the most well-known verse about God's love, John 3.16. Because the wrath of God and the love of God are not in conflict. There's a devotional by a guy named Sky Jathani that Elaine and Lena and I listen to each morning, and he recently shared this quote from a man named uh, Miroslav Volf. He wrote this after the reality of the Bosnian war that destroyed his home. This is what he said. I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. 
My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I could have that I would, have, I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. And God is wrathful against us because of our sin because of the evil that is in us, because of our desire to take God's place in the world and to increase above him. And if we do not believe in the Son, if we do not obey the call to repentance and faith, then we're told here that God's wrath remains on us, which means that we are born in sin and under God's wrath, and it will remain on us apart from a work of his grace. But the beauty of the gospel is that if we believe in Jesus, if we receive the Son, then the wrath of God is removed from us and we are given eternal life. Jesus is superior. Jesus is superior because he comes from the presence of God. He speaks words from God. He receives and gives the fullness of God's gifts and he removes the wrath of God from those who repent and believe. And in light of all this, we announce that Jesus, the Savior of the world, is superior to all. We proclaim with our lives and in words that Jesus is greater than us and everything else. And we gladly allow him to increase and to receive all the glory. Jesus is superior to all. Therefore, we must joyfully seek to see him increase as we fade to the background. So I invite you to reject the misery that comes from seeking your own glory. It's not worth it. And it's not what you were made for. Reject the misery that comes from seeking your own glory and join in on God's will. The thing that must happen because Jesus must increase. And because when we gladly allow our lives to be focused on the increase of his glory, then we find the ever-increasing joy that we are created for, that we are created to experience, and that we will experience when Christ is finally and fully exalted in this world. Let me invite you into a moment of silence to reflect on God's word. And then I will pray for us and we will close with the song.
Father, I feel the feebleness of my words to communicate the depths that are here. So I pray that by your spirit you would help us to see the wonder that is found when we submit to your will, the will that says that Jesus must increase and we must decrease. Lord, we confess that our hearts our hearts don't want that on their own, that we want to be seen as great. We want to increase our own glory. So would you, by your Spirit, through the miracle of the new birth and the new heart and the new spirit that you've put in us, cause us to be shaped more and more into the likeness of Christ and seek his glory above everything else. We thank you for Jesus who is superior. We confess that he is exalted above all. There is no one that can even be compared to him. He is in a different stratosphere when it comes to glory and honor and praise. And so we lift up his name and recognize that everything that we have, anything that we might do is because of him. And so to him be all glory and honor and praise. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.